today on EdgeFX. If we look at the past and we remember that the transition was a messy, nonlinear process, we should expect probably the same. I don't think it's going to involve going from stage A to stage B and within 20 years, we're going to be using renewable energy everywhere and we will have fully transition. I think it's going to be much messier than that. Rachel Gurney speaks with Herman Vergara, assistant professor in the School of History and Sociology at the Georgia Institute of Technology and author of the forthcoming book, Fueling Mexico, Energy, Environment, and the Transition to a Fossil-Fueled Society. They discuss Professor Vergara's book, The Green Revolution, the history of energy transitions in Mexico and beyond, and the politics of global climate action. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us today. We're really excited to speak with you about your research, about what lessons we might glean from the past and how we might solve some of these contemporary challenges related to fuel use, such as climate change. So I'd like to sort of begin by learning more about your upcoming book that you have coming out soon about um, fossil fuel transitions in Mexico. So the book, um, what it tries to do is essentially explain how, when, and why Mexico transitioned to fossil fuels. The time frame is... I look at events and what happened between 1850 and 1950. It's a little bit more capacious, actually. I actually go back to the 1830s and and the book somewhere in the a little bit in the 50s, and uh, I actually end up going to the 1960s. And the point is to show that in this period of time, over this period of 100 years, Mexico went from an agrarian society where fossil fuels were virtually unknown. People knew about coal, and they knew already that uh, people in Britain were using coal, people in, in the U.S. or in Germany, but nobody nobody used it. Oil was not a thing yet, not even in the U.S., and natural gas was essentially unknown. So I depict that society, I started there, and describe it as, as a society that is essentially living in what other scholars, including myself, call... Uh, a solar energy regime where all energy comes from essentially from the sun ultimately and it, it it flows into society mostly in the form of it's appropriated by by human society in the form of muscle power and things such as wood or uh, food that's where most of the of the energy comes from and then i move i move forward and i try to understand take a kind of a, a long perspective and try to understand how a hundred years later all of that had been transformed and how how by the 1950s Mexico is a fossil fuel society whose economy and society depends uh, for more than 80% of its energy on fossil fuels and where muscle power has become uh, mostly irrelevant for mo- uh, most uh, stages of production Industry industry has adopted uh, fossil fuels on a, on a massive scale. Uh, transportation uh, uh, is based on fossil fuels. And even at this point, I, the last chapter uh, shows how even agriculture, which has been the area where fossil fuels have been slowest to penetrate, is already starting to adopt them because Mexico, as you may know, is a place where the Green Revolution began with the Rockefeller Foundation. And the Green Revolution is many things, but one of the key elements is the uh, introduction of fossil fuels on a massive scale 
you know, the use of tractors and synthetic fertilizers that require a lot of energy and so forth. So we can see already by the 1950s that even agriculture is starting to operate on, on this basis. Mm-hmm. That's the main, the main objective of the book. And throughout the book, I try to understand the ways in which Mexico's transition is different or similar to transitions uh, elsewhere. I systematically tried to compare uh, the Mexican case with what, what happened in Europe, what, what happened in the U.S., and I think that's a pretty good summary. That's the book in a nutshell. Yeah. Could you tell us more about the Green Revolution for our listeners to understand that better? Well, the Green Revolution uh, began essentially as a project funded by both the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mexican government. And the idea was to create these hybrid seeds that would uh, produce far more yields than the traditional strains. And research in the 1940s was focused on wheat and and maize. Wheat was not a a very uh, important crop at the time in Mexico, and it was importing most of it. And as you know, maize was the basis of diet for the majority of people in Mexico. And by the 1950s, those, those strains had been developed, but the, the trick was that in order for those strains to actually yield, uh, sometimes three or four times more than traditional strains, you had to use, you had to adopt this whole package that usually involved irrigation that required electricity to pump the water. Because as you know, Mexico is, most of Mexico is, is very dry and it has very stark differences between a rainy season and a, and a, a dry season. So most of that agriculture that, that began using those new strains had to use uh, water pump from aquifers. In, or, in order to get that water, you had to uh, use uh, electricity. So that was the kind of the first element of the package. The other one was that those strains really didn't yield as much as promised without constant and recurrent uh, appliance of uh, synthetic fertilizer. And in order to produce that synthetic fertilizer, you need fossil fuels because it's a very energy intensive process. And and then there were other elements, uh, for instance, mechanization in the form of uh, tractors. You can see in the last chapter of the book, I I show how Mexico went from being essentially having an agrarian system or an, an agricultural system where most of the tasks were performed by human beings or animals even in the 1940s, and within 20, 30 years, the number of tractors and the level of mechanization just went through the roof. Uh, It went from having just a handful of uh, a few thousand tractors to having uh, almost 100,000 in a very short period. And those tractors were used mostly in areas that started using these new strains created by researchers what later on came to be known as the revolution. And so you see that that radical transformation take place mostly in the north, where irrigation was a norm, and where you had these huge agribusinesses that had the capital to buy you know, exact, very expensive items such as tractors and, and invest a lot of money in irrigate, irrigation systems and so forth. And, a lot of, and, and so for a, a short period of time, uh, Mexico was able to become self-sufficient in those two key uh, grains, in, in wheat and maize, 
But by the 1970s, uh, Mexico had to start importing part of, of their consumption of wheat and, and maize again. But it had already kind of locked in its agricultural system into this, this heavy use of fossil fuels. And it's very hard to move back, right? Mm-hmm. Once you have... Once you have that system in place, as scholars um, tend to show, I'm not the only one, it's very hard to move because you're talking about very large investments and a lot of created invested interests that are very hard to dislodge. And today, that is a norm. In most of Mexico, people use the strains from the Green Revolution, and agriculture is dependent on, on a massive uh, recurrent uh, uh, inputs from, that depend on, on fossil fuels. Right. So the Green Revolution isn't actually green at all, is it? So we, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer. We, we hear green and we think eco-friendly. But in fact, the Green Revolution led to dependence on fossil fuels, but also less environmentally friendly uh, methods of producing agriculture. And so, right. yeah, and so we've created some dependence issues, but also really just a reinforcing cycle of environmental degradation in these areas that um, I would say we're still trying to dislodge from. And so, yeah, so that is another aspect of these challenges around energy and production and um, use of water that really make it difficult to overcome or, I guess, solve these challenges. But there are people that are quite successful so far in trying to address some of these. So because we want to have a hopeful message to uh, focus on in, in terms of addressing these issues, I'd like to know more about, you know, what sparks energy transition. So we talk or you speak in your articles and in your book about how deforestation led to the use of coal. And and to me, that really signals that common proverb that uh, necessity is a mother of invention or innovation in this case or transition. So given that, what what lessons can we learn in terms of, I mean, is that is that saying that we'll have to run out of out of fossil fuel before we transition? Because that's a, a frightening thought. What's your take on that? Let's address the question of drivers. One of the, the interesting things that I found is that actually there's a lot of there are a lot of similarities between the Mexican case and other cases. There are some differences, but let me let me begin with the, the similarities. Uh, almost everywhere. The transition involved moving away from what we now would describe as renewable sources of energy, muscle power, and so forth, to first coal, pretty much everywhere, and then oil and natural gas. That happened everywhere, and it happened the same way uh, in Mexico. The difference, and I, I will talk a little bit about those differences in a second, the differences had to do more with the timing, the speed, and the length of each of those stages, right? But you see kind of the same pattern almost everywhere. Another similarity between the Mexican case and other cases is that you see the process first unfolding at a, a, at a regional rather than a national level. It was not Great Britain, it was not the United States, it was not Mexico or Germany that transitioned to fossil fuels. It's always small pockets within those countries, right? It's always uh, one region in, in Germany was mostly the rural region. In Great Britain, it was the Midlands and, and London. In the U.S., it was the mid-Atlantic states and parts of the Northeast, not the entire country. And in Mexico, it was mostly 
the area around Mexico City and then a, an area that became an industrial hub in the northeast around a city called Monterrey, that first transition. Only after several decades of the transition unfolding in those areas, then it starts kind of spill over to other uh, regions, right? That happens pretty much everywhere. The other thing that, that happens pretty much everywhere is that it's not, it was not a linear process. It was not, even though I'm talking about stages, it was a far messier process than, than that notion of stages will. Everywhere there were, sometimes the process accelerated, sometimes it kind of slowed down. At a regional level or a local level, sometimes the process might go in reverse and people stop, would stop using fossil fuels for some time and revert to wood and some, or water power and so forth. So it's a far messier process than, than this notion of just this kind of inevitable transition through stages uh, might suggest. And the other, the other interesting thing is that pretty much everywhere, there are some interesting exceptions, but it's, it, it seems to be a general pattern. It was not individual consumers, the, the ones leading the process. It was, it was mostly industrial interests and the state uh, that was pushing the process pretty much everywhere. We can see that in the German case. We can see that also in Mexico, is very, it is very clear and so forth. Now, there are some differences between uh, the transitions everywhere. And in some cases, as you were saying at the beginning, the problem of deforestation, not having enough wood to power your industries uh, and so forth, or transportation systems. Remember that in many cases, railroads were introduced and they used a vast amount of wood and some areas ran out of wood pretty quickly. But that, that driver wasn't operating everywhere. For, for instance, it, didn't, it wasn't really one of the main drivers in many parts of the U.S. because the, the U.S. had uh, an abundance of forests. And so they, railroads and industry could rely on forests there for a much longer time than pretty much everywhere, everywhere else. But there are some areas, uh, especially uh, places like most of Britain and parts of Mexico, where deforestation was, was a key driver. You have to remember that in the case of, of Great Britain, the country had been mostly deforested uh, over the previous centuries, mostly due to household consumption, uh, but also industry, because most of, for instance, most of the iron was produced by burning wood, right? So by the time that these 19th century technologies began to be implemented, steam engines and railroads and so forth, Britain had virtually no forests uh, left. So coal was kind of the solution to this wood famine. And in the case of Mexico, what happened was that Mexico had a very long colonial history, even actually pre-colonial history of mining, and mining uses a lot of energy. And so by the time that these technologies began to be used in the 19th century, the railroad uh, network expanded massively in the second half of the 19th century. Factories began adopting steam engines and using them to replace water power. Uh, remember that what I said before, that Mexico has a very stark drought season or uh, dry season. And so those factories that had adopted water power and water wheels to uh, mechanize their production, sometimes they had to shut down for half a year because there was not enough water, right? And so that combination of, of very specific uh, environmental conditions, in addition to this long history of, of mining that had literally devoured vast swaths of forests in Mexico, made uh, in the late eight, uh, 19th century, when there was this push to industrialize the country, made fossil fuels a very attractive pro proposition. 
And so you see the kind of slow adoption of coal, especially uh, among or, or in, in large industries that depended on, on a lot of energy, like iron production and then later on steel production, and also railroads, they started using coal. But the problem in Mexico is that there's not, it's not Britain, it's not the U.S. where coal is abundant. And so you see this kind of coal phase in Mexico being a very short one and then a very fast transition to oil. So all of this to say is that the drivers, we see similar drivers operating in different places. And actually, I would say that the striking thing about energy transitions is how similar they were over a very long period of time and in very different locations, but some drivers were more important in some places than in others. Mm -hmm. And deforestation was especially prominent, uh, a particularly prominent issue in areas, in parts of Mexico and in places such as Britain. It was not as relevant in many places in the U.S. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. What has been the role of social movements in catalyzing these energy transitions? Hmm, that's a good question. Mm, let me think. Well, like I was saying, in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, so in the transition to fossil fuels, you don't really see a lot of social movements pushing for the adoption. Actually, what you see most of the time is people resisting the adoption of fossil fuels, either because they, you know, their combustion causes this very unpleasant smell, or people rejecting the use of, say, coal or natural gas because it tainted food in households. But at least in the case of Mexico, you don't see an organized uh, movement trying to resist it. It's more, more like sporadic instances where people complain or people uh, refuse to adopt it, or uh, going back to the theme of the Green Revolution, you see peasants actually very rationally and pretty uh, justifiably rejecting the whole package because they realize that they're going to be dependent on patented seeds and mm -hmm. on inputs that they have virtually no control over. Right. Uh, whereas if they keep plowing their fields with oxen and their own muscle power, they at least have the control over what they produce and how they produce it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see those kind of isolated, isolated instances, but you don't see really a movement. If you want to think about the connection between transitions and, and, and social uh, movements, I think what we know is, and I'm, I'm here, I'm using the work of Timothy Mitchell in, uh, in his book, Carbon Democracy. What we see actually is the connection between movements that, that push for you know, the development of a welfare state or a social safety net by people who came to control, to some extent, the distribution of those fossil fuels, right? So in this case, what Timothy Mitchell basically saying is that it was coal miners and people who transported coal to consumption centers who ended up having leverage to push for better working conditions and better wages and so on. And so you can see that kind of the kernel of what later on will be described as this welfare status or a social safety net being driven by this reliance on coal. In that case, in Mexico, you don't really see that because coal was never king as it was in, in the U.S. or in, in, in a place like Britain. And so you never see the formation of this, this uh, working class that revolves around 
the, the extraction and the distribution of coal, and they never end up having this, this political power and this political leverage that they do in other places, which is one of the reasons why the difference in timing and, and the relevance of those stages do matter politically. And so in Mexico, you don't have a, a strong working class associated with the extraction of coal. And as you know, once, once you start using oil, you need far fewer workers and most of the distribution happens through pipelines. So you don't really need people. And, that, and the people that are involved, they don't control much of the process, right? And so the political consequences of that are very different. So I'm not sure that I answered your question, but I would say that those movements that we now see trying to foster a transition away from fossil fuels, mm -hmm. I at least don't really see them in the past. Like I said, it was mostly the way I, I see it, at least in the case of Mexico, it was mostly a process driven by state interests, by industrial interests. And then most of the people were just dragged onto this transition. Mm -hmm. I, most of them reluctantly, most of them were never asked whether they wanted to start using these fossil fuels or not. And when they complained, um, most of the time they were just ignored. In the case of Mexico, what you see is this recurring notion that the transition to fossil fuels will enable the state to repel, for instance, or be, become stronger so that it can repel foreign threats. In the case of Mexico, there was this this anxiety over what the U.S. might do. Mm. And so the idea was if we adopt fossil fuels, as we see other people doing it, especially the British and Europeans and, and, and the U.S., we'll become a stronger nation and the state will be able to defend itself better. So in other words, geopolitical reasons were very strong, a very strong incentive mm -hmm. uh, or pressure to, to adopt fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And in the 19th century, Things like coal and then later on oil had this this aura of, or rather, they were associated with with this kind of modern civilization. So if you wanted to be modern in the 19th century, you had to industrialize on the basis of coal and later on oil. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you. As you were talking about um, how the transition sort of began in these certain locations and then sort of expanded out from there, right? And I'm curious whether, like, how that relates to today's contemporary challenges with transitioning. For example, we have places like California um, in the U.S. who are really making a lot of um, gains in this area, but we're seeing some pushback from the current federal administration. So I'm curious how today's issues with some certain areas within the U.S. trying to make gains, how successful you see this being based on the past or what your take is in general? Well, I don't know what's going to happen in part because in the past, the energy transition was supported by the state. And here we see not always, but in some cases, we see very strong interest or shall I say, we see the state actually opposing the transition, right, to renewable sources of energy. So it's hard to tell how impactful that will be. On the other hand, by the fact that it's cities and mostly local communities, the ones that are pushing for this transition, it kind of replicates what we, what we see in the past, right, that it happened mostly at the local level and the regional level, and then it became a national phenomenon. So in that sense... 
if we take the past as, as product or if we take the past as example, we can be hopeful that they will eventually succeed. But in the past, those local communities didn't have the opposition of the state and didn't have the opposition of most uh, industrial and corporate interests. They, they were pushing the, the transition. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to remain hopeful, but it is, it is pretty daunting to see how these vested interests are and have been fighting for decades uh, a transition to renewable. So that is something that didn't happen in the past. And I'm just, I just, as a historian, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it, it is daunting and it is something that you don't see in the past. Now, one could say that what really matters then is, is to achieve political power and movements, social movements are crucial and uh, people organizing and striking and so forth. All of those elements matter. But if you don't, if you're not able to use the awesome power of the state to foster those transitions, it will be really hard, mm-hmm. really, really hard. Yeah. It might be impossible, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson. So based on the past, based on everything we've been discussing, how do you see sustainability playing a role in Latin America's continued development? Right now, uh, the push for for creating a more sustainable energy system is being, is being um, resisted on two fronts. On the one hand, we see people and politicians who are affiliated or, or allied with these really large corporate and industrial interests who are resisting the transition because, you know, they, they want to continue to make profits out of burning fossil fuels. Uh, so that's on the one hand. But on the other, there's some pushback by some uh, sectors that in other places you would think would be more sympathetic towards the transition because they see them sometimes as as an imposition from the global north. So they think sometimes they, there's this, this kind of recurring theme of that sustainability is something that uh, industrial nations of the, of the global north came up with as a way of stalling and slowing down industrial growth and development mm-hmm. in the so-called global south. Mm-hmm. And so you have those two fronts being skeptical sometimes of the need to transition mm-hmm. and skeptical of the intentions of, those, of the people who are pushing for, mm-hmm. for a more uh, sustainable energy system. Mm-hmm. I think what, what needs to happen probably is, is a very strong coalition between social movements and collective organizing and state power. I think one of the things that I've tried to show is that without the state, it will be very, very difficult to implement the transition on a scale that is needed. Because as you know, we don't have all the time in the world. We have a carbon budget. And if we cross it, there might be be a point of no return. So we don't have all the time in the world. And so we need some some large-scale action that requires the support of very, very big players. So going back to the point that I was uh, making before, we have to see some sort of coalition building between social movements and and politicians who are willing or have the political will to uh, see these these, uh, changes uh, through. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And as you know, too, it's not even only about just what I'm going to try to say is that this is not a problem that can only that can be solved only at the national level. The nation state, in a way, is an impediment to the type of energy transition that we need. Mm-hmm. This is a global problem mm-hmm. that individual nation states will not solve. Mm-hmm. So it's not only building these coalitions within within nation states, it's even more daunting and challenging. You have to build a coalition that at least includes some of the worst offenders and some of the largest emitters in the world. Mm-hmm. So even, even if you had a coalition of 150 states that didn't include the United States, Western Europe, and China, and India, you would not achieve what we need to achieve with the, the amount of time that we have at our disposal. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So does. those coalitions have to include those key players mm-hmm. because, you know, between China and the U.S. and some countries in Europe, you're talking about more than half of all emissions today. Right, right. And I think what you're touching on is this tension that exists in trying to find multilateral solutions to global problems. And that tension exists within the realm of responsibility. So who should be responsible for solving these problems and who is responsible for causing them? And and we know, we know who is responsible, but it's this who should be fixing it problem that is really this barrier blocking how nation states are able to solve these problems. It's been... Uh, an impediment for, I would say, decades at this point. Mm-hmm. So so these are the problems we know very well. How we overcome them, I'm not sure. But we've been talking about politics and the importance of politics and these institutions for solving these problems and how really it's impossible to do without them. But I think, you know, based on our conversation today, the role that individuals can play in this is through social action, through organizing, through pressuring these governments, um, and also educating themselves about these problems. Absolutely. I, I fully agree. I usually teach a course on global environmental history, and we spend a lot of time talking about energy and, and global warming and so forth. And at the end of the course, typically, many of my students will, will ask me, what do we do? And I try to always walk this this thin line between telling them that their individual choices matter, mostly from an ethical standpoint. So it does matter if you don't want to consume X or Y because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to dismiss that. But the truth is that our individual choices really don't have any impact. What matters are, is political action and that we are able to, like I was saying, find politicians who, are, who have the political will and, and who are willing to ally themselves with these social movements to effect change. And so I always try to remind them that what matters is what we do collectively. This problem will not be solved by either you or I not flying, or it doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do, but it's not, it's not going to have the impact, the necessary impact. Only... Mm-hmm change on a, on a large scale, on a massive scale, will really have the impact necessary so that we don't end up frying the planet. Yeah, yeah, social structural change. I, exactly. I tell students it's yes and, right? It's yes to all these things because it's the right thing to do, like driving your car less and all of that. 
but you have to also participate in some sort of collective change. That's the biggest bang for our buck. Yeah, right. in terms of exactly, and, mm-hmm. and so and to to show students that only individual action will not be enough by any means, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, okay, so what is the role, or what has been the role of native populations over time in protecting natural resources? in terms of Latin America and the things that you've been studying, and how might this play a role in sustainable development going forward? Wow, that's a very good question. It's a complicated one. Um, let me start with the past. In the past, the uh, development of, of fossil fuels actually came at the expense of a lot of uh, indigenous people. In the case of Mexico, most oil extraction took place in the tropical lowlands of the Gulf Coast, and those areas were inhabited by indigenous people. And they were, we have a really, really uh, excellent book by historian Myrna Santiago that traces the changes, most of them very negative, that took place in, in the area. Basically, the oil, the oil industry ended up displacing these indigenous people and they massively degraded their, their homes, their homelands. And so... I think a lot of historians have tried to show how how there's another book, a really interesting book that uses language such as uh, sacrificial landscapes. And, and so you see a variety of scholars trying to show how the cost of fossil fuel extraction is usually paid by, by indigenous populations or the poor and so forth. And the benefits usually accrue to people in consumption centers who don't have to face the effects of extracting oil or natural gas or and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. And so you see kind of the same thing in many in many parts of, of Latin America. Usually in Mexico, it's it's been in, in these um, tropical lowlands. In many countries in, in Latin America, such as Ecuador, it is also oil extraction happens in the Amazon. And it's been mostly indigenous populations who have paid the price, but have not accrued, have not received any of the benefits from burning fossil fuels. And now, in the case of Brazil, it is a little bit different because oil extraction happens offshore. But you can see how this kind of industrial economy powered by fossil fuels is threatening the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of indigenous people in in the Amazon basin, right? Mm -hmm. And that is connected to fossil fuels. And so you can see how how in many places, for for example, in, in Ecuador... It's been indigenous, the indigenous population, the one that has has been at the forefront of organizing resistance to oil extraction, right? And so they have played a vital role. Uh, unfortunately, many times the odds are really against them, and they it's a few people uh, with very very little political power facing these giant corporations that have very deep pockets and very strong political connections. Mm -hmm. So they're fighting a really, really powerful enemy, but they have been at the forefront of the fight uh, of this struggle to create uh, more sustainable energy systems. And at the same time to at least benefit somewhat from the fossil fuels that we're already burning. Mm -hmm. So I think they, they play a key role. Now I would be careful with, and I think a lot of indigenous uh, people are, are more aware of this, it's a tricky game that can usually be used against them. Because one of the things that we have seen in the past 
for instance, in the 1980s, when, when it was indigenous uh, groups in Brazil who became central in the struggle for preserving the rainforest and so forth, sometimes they adopted this discourse that saw them as the equivalent of noble savages of, or what Shepard Craig called the ecological Indian. And that can be a, a double-edged sword. Because sometimes if you present yourself as such, if you make decisions that don't completely align with that agenda, th that can be weaponized against you. Mm -hmm. So I think now many indigenous groups are a little bit more aware of this danger and have become savvier still using environmentalism and, and environmental ideas to uh, support their their struggle. But I think in a, in a probably in a more politically savvy way, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Overall, what lessons can be gleaned from the past regarding how we might transition from fossil fuels to sustainable energy? I know uh, that's the hardest would, question. <laughs> first of all, we need collective action. Individual choices are ethically correct, but they won't be enough. People need to find allies in, among state officials or politicians who have the political will to do it. And it has to be uh, a change that goes beyond the nation state. It has to be a change that involves especially the, the largest emitters in the nations that are the most historically responsible. The U.S. is a country that has emitted by far the largest amount of CO2 historically. Mm -hmm. So the, the U.S. has a particular responsibility for addressing global warming. And, and the people of the United States do too, because they, they are among, not everyone, but in general, among the, uh, the populations that have benefited the most from burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And so collective action, a, a movement that really uh, tries to go beyond the nation state and see us, see, sees it as what it is, a global problem that needs to be solved globally and include the major players. And the other thing is that I, I would say that going back to our conversation between you know local changes or local transitions and, and national ones or global ones, those struggles really matter. And they are probably going to be key in the long run, but they need the support of the state or of the federal government. Mm -hmm. Alone, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I don't think they're going to be capable of doing it. But those local transitions are crucial and we should try to support them as much as we can. I would finish by saying that if we look at the past and we remember that the transition was a messy non-linear process, we should expect probably the same. It's not going to be, I don't think it's going to involve going from stage A to stage B, very, a very neatly linear process. And within 20 years, we're going to be using renewable energy everywhere and we will have fully transitioned uh, to a sustainable energy system. I think it's going to be much messier than that. I think we might end up being, as we are now, seeing some reversals for various reasons. And so I think that that probably saying that is, is actually something that might uh, give us hope because we will not despair if we see that things are not just going um, exactly the way we thought. And it might, be, might end up being a much messier, much more complicated process. There might be a substantial overlap between stages. There might be a stage where we still use fossil fuels for a variety of uh of sectors in, within the economy, but others may have fully transitioned already. 
And so it's not just going to be all or nothing. I think it's going to be a complicated, uh, protracted, and fraught process, mm-hmm. just as it was before. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. <laughs> Unless there's anything else you'd like to um, add. No, thank you for your questions. It was, it was a lot of fun uh, talking to you. That was Rachel Gurney and Herman Vergara in conversation. Dr. Rachel Gurney is the Associate Director of the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Herman Vergara is an Assistant Professor in the School of History and Sociology at the Georgia Institute of Technology. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Weishun Liu, Nicole Bennett, and me, Ben Uliano. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always... Keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.